Bokertov. So today's daf is Memtet. We take up at the Mishnah on the bottom of Memchet Mutbet. Um, for whatever reason, I can't really explain the order of the Mishnayot after, uh, you know, dealing with the classic like a goring ox. And then we had a sort of a broader, uh, we, we sort of started creating some broader discussions about questions of doubt, questions about what happens when you give somebody a right to come into your yard, how much you're accepting responsibility, which was not just a question of goring, it was Shane, it was Regal, it was Bohr, it was sort of everything. Uh, now we get back to the Goring Ox, and we get back to the case that was referred to a number of times in the Gemara about uh, the uh, about in the Torah about two people fighting and mis- a miscarriage and paying for the the mevladot for the child for the law for the uh, for the misca- for the fetus, um, and that uh, that would not apply by the case of the Goring Ox. So let's take a look with that in our mission here at the bottom of Memcharem and Tzbet. So an ox was plant, was trying to gore its fellow ox. Uh, and accidentally it smote it gored a woman and it caused her to miscarry um, made Vlados the uh, owner of the ox does not have to pay the cost of the miscarried fetus the miscarried child the but if two people were fighting and probably somebody's trying to kill Ruvain and accidentally hit Ruvain's wife and caused her to miscarry Mishalim made Vlados pays the cost of the uh, law Fetus. So the Gemara is going like there's two points here. Why? Well, one point. Why are we only talking in both of these scenarios about trying to hit somebody else and hitting the woman? What if he tried to hit the woman? So in the case of two people fighting, he tried to hit the woman, presuming that meant an attempt to kill the woman. Then it would be an issue of kimle. Um, but interestingly, it doesn't seem like we say kimle if he's trying to hit Ruvain and accidentally hits Ruvain's wife. You know, we discussed before like mamon lazev and miso lazev. Like to what degree are those when you, when you say kimle do the acts have to be sort of seen? in the same category or not to be like in the same event or not but it, if he was directly trying to hit the woman and if it was something that would have uh, possibly brought about her death then he wouldn't pay her because of Kimway why the ox wouldn't have paid it doesn't say it would have paid but it sounds like we don't know if the ox was trying to gore the woman is the, um, or why the ox fight would have made a difference the ox doesn't pay even when, when it was trying to gore somebody else so we'll see in the Gemara what the story is if the ox is trying to gore the woman now how do you finally we finally get to this question of how do you pay the Demei Vlados. What does that mean? Ketzim Mishalim Demei Vlados. How do you pay the cost of the uh, child that was miscarried? Shaminet Isha Kamihi Yafa Achelo Yalada. You see how much a woman would have gone for in a slave market as a pregnant woman who has not yet given birth. The Kamihi Yafa Misha Yalada and how much she's worth now that she's given birth. Um, and you pay the difference. Now, this, as I said, it's very strange, and it's not very strange that you do this. This is a standard how you assess Nezek in a case of, uh, what do you call it, in the case of uh, injury of people, you use the slave market uh, measure. But what's strange is, is that you should be exempt by the case of the ox. Like, I'm not, I really still don't really understand this, i got to tell you. Like, uh, okay, we have a pasuk, you know, that sort of says, Kinutu anashim, anashim shvarim. But it sounds like, you know, that fundamentally this is some different category, different phenomenon. I don't understand why it's a different phenomenon. The ox injured somebody, ca- caused them an injury, caused them a loss, 
on the slave market would have been worth less. Like, why is that not just standard uh, nezek that an ox does to a person? It sounds like, and we'll see in the Gemara, um, you know, that, um, that because when you would be paying for this person on the slave market, you were not, re- and you paid more money, you weren't, weren't really paying for this person. Like, this slave, you know, if you think about the long 30 years I'm going to own this slave or whatever it is, right? It's not that now I'm paying more because this woman now is a slave is worth more, you know, is going to be worth more money for me long term in terms of the person. The, you're paying because you're getting a bonus. You're getting an extra baby slave in the package. So therefore, the injury really, although the way you assess the value of the baby slave, of the fetus, is by looking at the difference in the slave market. It's really not the different values of the slave. What you're really doing is you're paying the extra money because in the package you're getting a, an extra bonus that together with the package. It's not and really nezek to the woman. It's not nezek to the woman, right, the which woman. is why it's the maize ladot. Right, exactly. The woman, long term, is going to be, let's say, you know, she didn't suffer any trauma due to this goring, whatever, you know, and let's say long term, she's just as healthy and just as, you know, everything as she would have been beforehand. So there's no real dam- like long-term damage to the woman's body. What there was, was, was the loss of this extra thing, which was not really her market price. So therefore, that seems to be the idea. And therefore, the idea seems to be that because this thing, right, it's like, well, what did it damage? Like, it, it, it didn't damage a, 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 it didn't damage a chair. It damaged this, you know, baby, this un born baby. Well, who do you pay? Who owns an unborn baby? You know, it's like, what? Well, it's sort of like, a, I mean, I guess it's like, maybe it's a Stavrisha Lola Balolam problem. It's also a problem like that. Who even owns an unborn baby? Like, if he goes up right, and therefore, to what degree do you commodify that? Or maybe you're right. Maybe also partly because it's like hidden and it's not even Bali Olam. So that seems to be why there's more seen of this Hiddish that there's going to be a payment here. Because it's not really injury to the woman's body. And it's injury of this thing. And you have to first of all define who owns it. Right? Who's entitled to a payment when this thing gets lost. And that's going to be the husband. And we actually found out that even if she, does, if she doesn't have a husband, it's not her. Which is interesting. Right? It's not just the husband. It, even it, like it's only seen to be the husband. And that uh, it's the whole thing is a Hiddish. That there, you know, maybe because it's a double show of Allah, maybe because it's a commodifying of a fetus, which we have not yet had, and therefore you're not going to have that payment in the case of an ox. You're only going to have that payment that the Torah is in the case of two people that fight. Okay? So how do you assess it? You assess the difference in the slave market. Amar No, because a woman actually is worth more after she gave birth. Now, because he figures that a woman is in, well, I mean, I'm going to tell you what the Gemara is going to say, is in danger of losing her wife and the, well, her life in the process of childbirth. And therefore, if you're really assessing the value of the woman, you know, you know, after she's given birth, and now she can go work in the fields, and now she's healthy, right? A pregnant woman, she's got to, who knows, be on bed rest or whatever it is. As a slave, she is worth more after she gave birth, right? You might not get the free slave out of the deal, but she is worth more. Now, of course, okay, she is worth more, but to figure out the value of the baby, let's use her value on the slave. Market. No, you just directly assess the value of the fetus. How do you do that? Presumably, he says you can't use the slave market because that's going to factor in her value long term, and that actually, right now, her value is low because there's a risk she might not survive, etc. So, I don't know what you do. You actually, I guess you go around and you ask people, how much would you pay to own an unborn fetus with the percentage likelihood that it'll be given birth and then it'll be your slave or something like that? So, you don't do it in terms of the package of the woman 
you try to directly assess how much people would pay for this fetus as a slave. Uh, you give it to the husband. Um, if she does not have a husband, you give it to his heirs, meaning the husband is dead. If she's divorced, we had that case before also that she doesn't get it, nobody gets it. Um, if, however, she was a freed uh, slave or a convert, you're exempt. Now, why are you exempt? I mean, if she's a free slave or convert, married to a man, just give it to the man. So the Gemara, there's a long Rashi, whatever, it sounds like the Gemara um, assumes and Rashi explains that it's really not about her being a freed slave, or, freed slave or a convert. It's about that she's married to a freed slave or a convert, and therefore, if the man dies, there are no heirs. So since the Mishnah said a minute ago, if there are heirs, you give to the heirs if the husband is dead, but if there is no husband, then you basically, um, that, I mean, excuse me, if there are no heirs, because the husband was a freed slave or, or a convert or whatever, and he didn't have children, then you obviously, then you don't pay. And the chiddush about all of this is that you don't give it to her, right? And that's what's so shocking, is that, and that's what really points out the idea that you are considering this to be some independent entity, and somehow something that only the husband has rights to, that he can bequeath to his kids, like anything else, he has money coming in and so on, but that if, but that would not transfer to her under any circumstance. Let's say she's divorced at the time of the injury. We had that before, right? Now, the Gemara before actually discussed the issue, I think I mentioned before that, that divorce would be a case, but I remember, but I, I misspoke because, like, the Gemara, I have to double-check. The Gemara discussed, right, even if they were, even if she gave birth out of wedlock, right? It's Baal Ha'isha. It sort of read it as Boel Ha'isha. So it's really the father of the children, not the husband of the children. So I misspoke a minute ago. So if she's not married, you still give it to the father of the children. But she, as the mother, has no financial rights to this uh, to this fetus. Yes, Charlie. So that brings the question: What if she's been licentious and promiscuous, right. and she doesn't know the father? If you don't know the father, you don't pay anybody. Okay, so let's take a look at the Gemara. So the reason the ox uh, the um, it's, uh, doesn't pay, the owner of the ox doesn't pay, is because the ox was trying to, to gore a different ox. Um, or at least that scenario, it's the scenario in the Mishnah. One would surmise from the Mishnah that if the ox was directly trying to gore the woman, you would pay. Let's say this is a contradiction to Avada Barava. That if oxen is even if it's trying to gore the woman, it's exempt because the whole case in the Torah is for people, not for oxen. It doesn't matter if the ox is or is not trying to gore. By a person, it might matter because of Kimway. Anyway, the Gemara says no. will say to you, the mission does not mean to exclude the case of trying to gore the woman, whether it did or did or didn't try to gore the woman. No payment for Vlados for an ox. So why did it say it was intending to gore a fellow ox? I the the kaboy lemisni seifa adam shayim miskavin chaveiro. Since it's going to contrast it to the case of a person who is trying to hit, hit Ruvain and winds up hitting Ruvain's wife, the hachik sive kra because that's the case case in the Torah so it gives the scenario of trying to gore one and goring the other but actually in the case of the ox it wouldn't matter you'd be exempted both it's also funny because the Mishnah Gemara makes it sound like that even in the Mishnah it really even in the case of people the only reason it wrote it that way was because that's what's in the Psukim it sounds like it really it wouldn't matter by people maybe you would also pay even if you were Miskavim Le'isha now if you were Miskavim Le'isha not the killer maybe you would pay but if you were Miskavim Le'isha in order to kill her right then it would be a Kimlik 
case. But it is funny, the Gemara doesn't even introduce Kimwe, just says, look, we're just following the scenario in the Torah. We do not mean to, to halachically limit it just to this case. Okay, so now let's continue. Um... All of this that an ox doesn't pay is when it gores a free woman. But if you gored a slave and caused a miscarriage, you would pay. Why? Uh, my time. What's the reason to the owner of the uh, to the owner of the slave? Now, this is of course very. Uh, difficult when the Gemara deals with some of these comments about non-Jews or about non-Jewish slaves and so on. It's just, you know, it's just injuring like a donkey, like a pregnant donkey. Meaning the sort of question I asked before, which is, I don't understand. The woman was worth more before, worth more or less. Why don't you pay it by an ox if you use the slave market? So the point is, well, yes, but your using of the slave market comes after your it's not like a woman is a slave and sold by a slave and you actually did damage some type of a piece of property the using of a slave market to assess the damage for her people is after your machadesh that there is going to be a payment for a person and we have to find some model to use to assess a dollar value right but if somebody actually lost their arm you wouldn't say oh you know how much that's worth now you're worthless on the slave market what do you mean I'm worthless on the slave market I was never sold, put on the slave market to begin with. The use of the slave market as a way of assessing value is once you say, look, the chiddush is you pay for injury. Now we have to find some type of way of assessing a dollar value to it. Let's use the slave market. That's normally what you say. And therefore you could say, in the case of a lost fetus, the Torah was never mechadish that you paid for a lost fetus. Okay? Because, you know, and there's so, you, you, don't, you have to start by saying you, you're, we're going to assign a dollar value value here to a, to, to a human life that fundamentally is not a commodity and the Torah would not, by a fetus only said that in the case of the husband right or in the case of a, a people fighting not in the case of an ox fighting okay <laughs> but what the Gemara is saying is if it gores a slave then it really does start as a piece of property this ox damaged something that the owner, uh, you know, that was a property of the owner. It was also a human being, but it was also property of the owner. So, you don't need any chiddish if an ox damages something that's a piece of property that now is worth less. So then it's worth less. It should pay. Right? By, a, you, by somebody who's not a slave, you don't have the initial property model to begin with. So you have to first say, well, there's going to be a payment for some, loss of a, for some loss of limb. There's going to be a payment for a loss of a fetus. Let's look for a model. Okay? And we want Mechadish, the loss of a fetus payment by an ox. But here it starts with the loss of property. All right? So that seems to be the point. So you don't have to make some big, like, sort of like, you know... Uh, um, you know, whatever, devaluing of uh, non of slaves or whatever, just acknowledging that legally they're property. Of course, the next line of the Gemara makes all this harder. So you see, uh, they're just like donkeys anyway, and therefore, but I really think the point is, is that you don't need the Chiddush of Demei Vlados if you start fundamentally with the idea that it's property. Now let's look at this little Tosos. I saw there was a question, but let's first look at this little Tosos. He says, Remember, an ox is a well you're exempt if a human life is lost in an ox, right? If a human dies in an ox. You don't pay if 
a slave dies. You don't say, well, that wasn't a human life. That was just a donkey. So the Torah says, Chamor velo adam, chamor velo and this is a chamor. I'm going to pay for it. Right? So it says, you don't say that. You say it's a human life and you don't pay for it. It's really not based on saying that a slave is a donkey. It's really based on saying that the Torah's category of vladot, you know, whether you pay for a human or you don't pay for an ox, is when we're talking about a husband. But when we're talking about an owner, that's not the case in the Torah. So Tosus moves away from the donkey focus and the difference between husband and owner. And what I would say is exactly what I said before. We are not saying that a slave is just a donkey. Oh, it's just a donkey, so even though it's chamor v'loadam, you're still going to pay for it in a well. No. It's a life, it's a human being, and so on. But what it is, is in addition to being a life and a human being, is that it's also property. And also, by a boar, you don't pay for humans. End of story. But by an ox, even though there's no chiddish that you pay for demei v'loados as, as a human life, right, there also is a reality that property was damaged, and therefore there is going to be the payment by the ox goring the uh, pregnant slave, because it also has the status of property. Yeah, Dove, and then I Michael. Have two questions. Well, one is, why is this Tsar, why is this confined to Nezik? We're going to get to Tsar in the Gemara. And then, why is the slave market used as a model for Nezik, where it's for Tsar? It's like, how much would you pay me to chop up your ox? Right. That, that's a different model. That's right. also horrific to think about. Right. But it's more humanizing. You mean, so why by, why by Nezik did we not say, how much money would you take try to, to, you know, instead of having an arm. Well, maybe because the assumption is, is, that, there's, is, that, is, that, is that there's no amount of money, you know, for most people, right? So, I mean, you could say the same is true about pain, too. There's no amount of money. Look, the big question also always by pain is, is, is how much amount of money would you pay me in order to endure this pain? For a lot of people, the answer is like, I don't care how much money you give me, I don't want to endure that pain. Or sometimes it's like, how much money would you pay, would, would you pay to be saved from this pain? But the problem with that is, well, it depends how much money I have to start with. Right? If I'm a multimillionaire, the answer is a lot different than if I'm, you know, than if I'm a, a poor person. So there's, even by the pain, there's like not a really good way to determine, right? But I think the problem is that by the limit, it's like ironic, but because by the limit, it's like so, it's like infinite, then that's, we can't use that amount. So we have to use some amount that actually does assign a dollar value to it. Yeah, Mike. I mean, one is, I thought pain was not exactly, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's, we're going to chop your arm off anyway. How much would you endure to have it right. with the, you know, anesthetic versus not? Right. Not, not that but that's what I said. How much would you, suffer, how much would you pay so. to endure this pain? Yeah. I didn't say to have your arm chopped. That's exactly the question. But for some people, the answer is nothing. You can't pay me any money in the world to have to undergo that pain. But the other one was, I was going to say, was the short of the I mean, I think it's, you know, that model might be a little bit different. For you hold that people that are a little bit more conscious and aware of where they should be going, which is why you're exempt for... Okay, well, we'll get to that, but that's... that's and, you know, to say some of the Hamar, yeah. I understand, but I, I, anyway, that's not fine. That's possible, but it's not what I see Tosa saying. Tosa is, I think, exactly saying the point I did, which the point here is not to dehumanize and to say that we don't consider this person an Adam, but it's to say we do recognize that this person is property. So when you're dealing with property, then it's very different. Then you do pay the owner of the property the loss of the property. Yes. People what? Right. 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 That's true. Okay, let's go on. So the Mar says like this. How do you assess it? So the Mar says, What are you only talking about the cost of the fetus? Shavach Vlados Mibayale. There's also the Shavach. Now, what does it mean? It means apparently from the Gemara, and we saw this a day 
year or two ago that, you know, because when somebody is pregnant, not only do you say, oh, I'm buying this pregnant slave, I'm going to get some extra baby, uh, an extra baby in the deal, but the slave also looks apparently like this, you know, healthier, fatter, <laughs> when fat was seen as healthy. Okay? So therefore, that also increases, based on perception, the value of the woman. So the mother says, fine, that's what it means. Fine, so when you assess the difference of the woman on the slave market, it includes, you know, her, her price is bumped for two reasons. Bumped, haha. Anyway, <laughs> because, of, because, because of the baby and because she looks like, a, you know, a stronger, bigger woman. Fine. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. What, do you think a woman goes for a higher amount before than after? On the slave market, she goes for more. Again, at least the woman goes for more. But, I mean, excuse me, the woman goes for more after she's given birth. So, what do you mean that you pay the difference? Now, again, maybe, you know, okay, in terms of the woman, she's now, you know, now she can get back to work, now she's not at risk, but, you know, you lost the value of the baby, but that's what he's saying. Looking at the difference in the slave market for the woman is not an accurate way of assessing the value of the baby because you're also factoring in the woman's difference and her difference her value goes up after she's given birth okay um, you directly ask assess like somebody how much would you buy to own these ba- you know the fetus and you'll, you'll pay me now and you'll own it after it's born assuming that it's born as a, you know it survives and so on and that's how you do it you directly assess the market value of the fetus we taught a similar bright said that that explains that that's what Rabbi Shimon was saying. What you think she's worth more before rather than after? She's worth more after she gave birth than before. So you directly assess the value of the vladas. Okay. No, no. Here's what Shimon was saying. Right. The language is isha yoladas meshabachas. He adds the words lemi does the increase in value of the woman meaning again not the value of the fetus inside of her but the increase in value that it makes her look healthier and so on does that is that a something that the owner that the husband somehow is entitled to meaning what it's basically saying this is why the Gemara before introduced the idea of shvach vladot when you're paying for the difference you're not just paying for the value of the fetus you're paying for the fact that the woman looks healthier but then what Shem Gamliel is saying is but the husband isn't entitled to that increase the husband's only entitled to the value of the Vlad. What you've done here is you've packaged, you've wrapped within the value of the Vlad the fact that it looks like the woman is a bigger, healthier woman. And that's not something the husband should be getting. Um, and she's not entitled to the Shvach Vlados, which is not the cost of the Vlados, but her own improvement because of the Vlad. Ella, Shamanis of Vlados, who in the Baal, fine. You give the husband the actual cost of the fetus itself, for Shvach Vlados, but the way that, but the fact that she herself, her price would have gone up on the slave market, Cholkin, they split. Okay, that, now that's interesting. Where do you get the idea of Cholkin? Right? Normally, you give, 
give damage to the person, woman's body to herself. Okay, but here, I guess, I mean, again, I don't know if, you know, it's just, I guess, Svara. It's like, well, since the Torah gave the husband the right to the babies, and but normally you give injury to her body to herself, and this is injury to her body or depreciation of her body because of her, the babies, so that sort of puts it between the two of them, so we'll split it between the husband and the wife. Okay, that seems to be the logic. Um, okay. V'cholkin. Uh, um, where were you? Shavu Lodos Cholkin. Tanya Namihachi, we talked similarly. Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be then Shavu Lodot should go to her? That's what I just said. Right. Because the Shavu is is a increase in her value, but it's only because of the babies. And the Torah's already told us that the baby was something that the husband had rights to. So we have to figure out, well, who has rights to her incre- temporary increase in value because of the babies? So, on the one hand, it's her body. On the other hand, it's due to the babies. So, we'll be Svara. We'll say Cholkin. Ta- what? Ta- I mean, I know there's no Pasuk. It's just Misvara. Tanya Nami Hachi, we talked similarly. What I don't understand. You know, does she have no rights to her increased value due to the babies? Now, finally, now we get to clarifying all the payments. Okay, rather, you, deset, you assess the Nezek, meaning, let's say, forget the fact that now she's worth less because she doesn't have babies coming with her, or a baby. Maybe she actually suffered some trauma. Maybe she's actually going to be laid up in bed for months after this thing. So whatever the Nezek is, you assess that independently, and you pay that to the woman. The Tsar and the suffering you pay to the woman. And as far as the, ba- the fetus is concerned, you pay the husband the cost of the fetus. The Shvach Vlados, and the increase that she had in terms of her own value due to the baby is Cholkin. You split. She gets a Tsar. She gets a Tsar. Now, by the way, Rashi points out to another Gemara, we'll get to Baba Kama, that even about the Nezek, there's some way of splitting it, but we're not going to worry about that then. Now, there's a contradiction of these two Brightas. One Brighta, Rav Shimon said that you, um, hold on, let me just check Rashi. Uh, right, because what did the earlier Brighta say? Um, oh, because the earlier Brighta said that she's worth less um, when she's pregnant. And this Brighta says that there's a Shvach Vlados, that they split, that she's worth more when she's pregnant. So which is the story? Is she worth less when she's pregnant or more when she's pregnant? So the Gemara says, no. Lo kasha. Question if it's a first child or not a first child. If it's a first child, she's worth less when she's pregnant. Again, not the child cost of the Vlad, her own cost, her own, her own price. Because if it's the first time, then the assumption is that there's a high risk that something could go wrong. But if she's already successfully had a child, you know, and then the body has proven its uh, durability or whatever, you know, and it's used to it and so on, then apparently the assumed risk is much less, um, and therefore her price does not go down because she is pregnant. Okay. So the rabbis, they only look at one thing. What was she worth before? What's she worth after? So that difference, you know, packages together both the cost of the fetus and the increase in her own market value as a result of her being pregnant. So it's clear that the rabbis say that the husband is entitled not only to the value of the fetus, but the increase in her own market value. Where do they get that from? Okay, Rabbana, the Ami Shvach Vlados, Ami Labav, the husband also gets the Shvach Vlados. My time, what's the reason? Can it not? Like we talked in, or can it time? We talked in Brisa. Mashma Shenemar, the Yatsi her children, um, you know, were expelled. You know, she was, uh, she miscarried. In your day, she hara. Of course she's pregnant. Matam Abama Hara, why did it say that they smote a pregnant woman? Um, it, because it would be a little funny to say they smote a woman and her children came out without having told me that she was pregnant. But okay, within Midrash Halacha, you didn't have to tell me hara. I could have figured that out. Lamar to tell you to tell me the word that hara 
includes also any improvement in her own value by virtue of the pregnancy, not by the fetus, but by the pregnancy. Okay. What does he do with that extra word hara? Like we don't so only the husband only you only pay the, uh, the 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 woman's husband if she miscares if she was smit, if she was smote right opposite like the womb. So Papa We don't need literally opposite the womb. Anywhere on the body that directly would have had some type of a heat or some type of an impact would have been felt in the womb. Levad, you know, felt by the fetus. Lafuke yad If he was hit on the leg or the arm, you know, and then she miscarried not, which is so funny because you would say, I don't get it. You hit her on the arm and right afterwards she miscarries it. It probably is the trauma, right? But it, se- it seems like it's a question of like, of like grama. And maybe there's also part of what the Chiddush is about the case of the goring ox, which is nobody directly gored the fetus. It was just the woman that gored. The miscarriage was just how the bot or what, or that was hit. It was, it was just how the body reacted afterwards. Well, that's grama. That's not nezek. Right? So maybe that has something to do with why this is seen as a chiddish and the ox doesn't pay. So then the Gemara, of course, we didn't say that by the case of the pregnant slave, but okay. Anyway, so it says like, well, maybe that's true, would be true if she was hit in a place that was not directly, that, that somehow the impact of the hit was not directly felt in the womb, you know, even if it somehow led to some psychological trauma, etc., that did lead to it. Maybe that's seen as grama, not seen as direct injury. Okay? But it does seem as a, definitely as a chiddish. So what we're saying is there's, there's definitely a chiddish that you pay for the vladot it has to do with the commodifying of life and so on which is why in the case of smiting a slave where it's all directly seen as property it's not a chiddish and the, and the ox pays but in the case of free people it is seen as a chiddish so the ox doesn't pay only humans pay only when it's directly harayon. and then the question is how do you assess that value do you directly try to determine the market value of the fetus or do you determine it based on the difference in terms of the pregnant woman and, a woman, and the woman who has given birth yes we had an interesting question at the beginning about the, the fetuses being treated as independent entities. Like, let's say a pregnant woman hits somebody. Right. Um, can't collect from her, can collect from her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, There's no halach of migufo. No, no. No, they're not, no, they're not, bar, they're not a barchiyufa. If she had a 13-year-old boy in her womb, then maybe we could talk about it. Okay, so the verse says like this. <laughs> if she was a slave and she had been freed, which again for the Gemara really means that, the, that she was married to a slave and therefore there are not going to be any heirs if the husband is dead. Ogiyar is pater. I'm a rabbi. That she was injured when her husband, the gear, was alive and then the gear died. So then there's nobody to inherit the debt that's owned, owed to the gear. Once she was injured in the, uh, while her husband was alive, the gear husband, then he has rights. Then he's entitled to the payment. And then when he dies, the one who did the injury, now, uh, you know, because the money's still in his pocket, so he, the same way he could seize the gear's property, he could seize the money that he owes the gear. All right. Aval, let's say the gear is dead, okay? So, what would be the story? Right? What would be the story if a woman was injured after her husband was dead? Let's say in a normal case, would presumably, again, because we said that the money never reverts to the woman, okay, but presumably then it would go straight to his heirs if she was injured after the husband or after the father of the child was dead. What if it is after the gear is dead? So finally, according to Rabbah, Rabbah is telling me, you know what? 
the woman can eventually get paid for the loss of her own children. Again, this really just shows how much love we're dealing like in the context of a patriarchy, right? That any payment for the children only goes to the husband or the father even and his heirs. The woman is completely, the mother is completely cut out from any payment relating to the children. Okay, but at least Rabbah says, no, if there are no heirs, then it does go to her, you know? Yes, it's first his, but at least second it's hers. Not immediately second, after there are no heirs, if he's a dead gear, then it'll be hers. Okay? Right, right. Rabbi says it's really not about the woman. Right. Exactly. 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 Okay, so according to Rabbi, at least, it's not a, the patriarchy does not totally exclude the mother. As long as there are no heirs and the injury occurred at the moment when the, fa- the father was completely out of the picture, she would actually collect. Is that a okay. regular laws of Yerusha in general? No. Regular laws of Yerusha, the mother never, the, the wife never collects from the husband. Um, so it's not about Yerusha here. It's about fundamentally she's entitled as the mother once you get the father and his, you know, and his heirs out of the picture. Okay, so it says like this. Um, okay. And he has to, you have to pay her. Amar of Chizda, Mari Dichi, the master of this discussion, meaning like it says, or like it's some type of, you know, of like, a, of like, what are you talking about? Okay. Atu Vlados What? You think that the fetus is like a little bundle of money? A little bundle of joy. It's funny, it's sorry, it's a bundle. Anyway, and she, like somebody owns a child? I mean, he's basically saying, you know, you don't own your children, okay? So the whole idea, well, if there's no husband and the mother, what do you mean? That, there's not a concept here of like fundamentally being owned and you damaged my property or things that I owned. Um, Ella, it's just an arbitrary, you know, monetary award, not reward, award that the Torah signs, but there's not a question of owning the babe, owning the fetus. So therefore, the Torah is mechadish, that if there's a husband, he gets some payment. It was never mechadish that a woman gets payment. If you look at it not as a compensation for a loss, but you look at it as some payment the Torah signed, they're saying the Torah just only didn't assign it in this case. End of story. Okay? So it's not like he's fundamentally disagreeing that, like, the mother, you know, has rights to her baby. But what he's doing is he's questioning the idea of ownership of the baby altogether. Okay? If you look at it as a type of an ownership, you could say, well, the husband and his heirs are out of the picture, the mother owns the baby. But he says, I just look at it as an assigned payment, and if therefore if there's no chiddish, then there's nothing to pay, which is also why I guess you don't pay in the case of the ox. Okay, so he says like this. But Rabbah still holds his position. And we're going to focus on Rabbah's position. Mesve, I'll ask you, now we're going to try to challenge Rabbah's idea that the mother does get paid. Um, you smite a woman and she miscarries. You pay the, the nezek and the tsar to the woman, like we said, because of just her own injury and the cost of the vladus to the husband. If the husband is not around, you pay to his heirs. If the woman isn't around, you pay the payment that would normally go to her to her heirs. However, she was again shifcha, which we are saying means married to a ger, and the ger isn't round. Zacha, 
So the person who owes the money, you know, wins out. He doesn't have to pay. And we're assuming this means even if there was no husband, the gear had already been dead when the injury occurred. So you see that, you see Rabba's wrong. You don't pay the woman. Amri, so the answer is, Why is that any better of a question than our Mishnah? We said the Mishnah was talking about that the injury occurred when the gear was alive and then he died. Here, where there's no payment, it's when the injury occurred when the gear was around and then he died and there's no one to inherit. But if the gear was if the, if the husband, gear had died before the injury, you would pay the mother, according to Rapa. Or I could tell you that yes, the injury occurred after the gear died. The tani is zasa, and when it says zacha, it doesn't mean zacha the one who would pay. Zachsa means the that the one who's deserved to be paid gets paid. The woman gets paid. Okay. So Rabbah's still insisting though that if the heir, if the husband and his heirs are completely out of the picture, the woman, the mother actually gets paid. Let's say this is connected to a debate of tonight, or this is a debate of tonight. So here, finally, this brighter discusses it directly, not with a freed slave woman, but by a, a normal woman, whatever, who is married to a ger. Okay, by Yisrael is married to a ger, and has a baby, and is pregnant. And she's injured by this person um, in the life of the ger. No saying to me, so he pays to the husband. Um, excuse me. Um, so now, what happens though if she was injured after the gear died? So Tani Chada Pchayev. So one writer says if she suffered the injury after her husband the gear was dead and there were no heirs, it says that you still have to pay her. The Tani Chada and another writer says you don't pay her. So that seems to be exactly our debate, right? Does she get it if there was no gear husband around when when the injury occurred? So my love tonight, you know, it doesn't isn't a debate of tonight that Rava so so the Rava vade tonight. So okay, you're right. So Rava definitely has a debate of tonight. The Tana that says Chai, if you still have to pay the mo- you pay the mother in that case, holds like Rava. The one that says you don't pay says disagrees with Rava. So fine. Would you say according to Chizda who says that you never pay the mother? Would you say that's a debate of tonight? Because here you got a writer that says you do pay. So my says. Um, no, Kasha. No, it's not difficult. The debate here is not paying for the Vladot. You would never pay for the Vladot. According to Rav Chista, you would never pay the mother for the Vladot. The question is, is paying for the Shvach Vladot. Okay, for the depreciation in her own value because of now she's no longer pregnant. Not because of the Vlad. Okay, so one would say, now remember, who gets the Shvach Vladot? You remember this? The Rabbanans say the husband gets it. And Simon Leo says she gets half. Okay? So here he's saying, this debate, when there's no husband, no gear, he's dead, no heirs, etc., do you pay her? Rav Chizah said, I would say that paying for the Vladot, you never pay her. That's my position. The debate is about paying for the Shvach Vladot. That according to one, you do pay her. Because according to one, Rav Chizah said, she always gets paid for, partly at least, for the Shvach Vladot. And according to the other opinion, you don't, because you, it's only the husband that gets the Shvach Vladot. So for the Shvach Vladot, 
I agree she could get paid. For the Vlados, she will not get paid. So, she's getting paid, but she was getting half paid even when her husband was alive. You didn't need her husband to be a dead gear to get her paying, to get her receiving payment for the Shvach Vladot. So the Gemara says, no, you're right, but when her husband was alive, she only took half of the Shvach Vladot and her husband took the other half. Afterwards, she gets all of it. Now, of course, the question that you should be asking me is one minute. Why does she get the other half of her Shvach Vladot when the husband is out of the picture, but she's not going to get the value of the Vlad when the husband is out of the picture. Everybody with me what we're saying? Kornjot Chizu was saying that when the husband is out of the picture the mother never gets the value of the Vlad. But when she was getting half of the Shvach Vlad according to Rabbi Leo she'd get all of it after the husband is out of the picture. Because the Vlad is, is not hers so to speak. Well that's what he's going to say. The Vlad is something that's not nobody owns the Vlad. Right. So, that, so that's what the Gemara is going to say. Nobody owns the Vlad. It was just an assignment of, an, a, pay, of a payment in the Torah. If there's no husband, the Torah never signed payment. Shvach Vlad is an actual that is her body and that is an actual loss that came to her and she actually always had a right to it she was just sharing that value with the husband so then she is entitled to all of it when the husband isn't around so that's what we're going to get to say okay let's just let's get let's now say that um, okay uh, this question about do you pay the word mother both is when there's no husband it's a dead gear it's exactly this difference you do pay the mother the shvach vladot. You don't pay the mother even if the husband is dead and he's a gear, etc. You don't pay the mother the demei vladot, the value of the fetus itself. Amri says, the says, one minute. Shvach vladot, lishma demei vladot. Let's say this. If you're paying the mother for the shvach vladot, then why not also say you should pay her for the value of the vlad itself? And if you're doing this payment for Abshim Gamliel, you should do it for the Rabbanan. Once you're conceding that the mother gets an award, gets, you know, payment after the husband is out of the picture, if what she's doing is she's getting the other half of the Shvach Vlados after the husband is out of the picture, logically say she should get paid for the Dnei Vlados after the husband is out of the picture. He says, no. Amri, low. That's not a good comparison. Shvach Vlados to Shaykh Yadabigavayu. The Shvach Vlados that she has, her hand is, you know, connected to it meaning like she's already got rights to it even as alive she had half of it and you could just say technically she you know she actually was awarded half of it when she when, when the husband was alive but also B it's her body so in that case when the husband's out of the picture she now has full rights to it okay but that's a real thing that she had rights to and it's really her body to Mevlados the actual cost of the fetus itself when the husband was alive she had nothing and not only that according to this logic, it's not sereri, right? It's not like a thing that you own. It's not your body. So therefore, she gets nothing if the husband is out of the picture. So it's a really fascinating question about whether, you know, whether the Torah here, I mean, it's a big problem. Like the same way when we have to assess a value of how do you determine the value of an arm, and we say you do the slave market, and to some degree there, we know that that's an arbitrary assignment of value, but when the Torah says you pay for the loss of the fetus, it like does raise a question. Is the Torah conceptualizing this as your child is something that you own and that you
you're being paid for the loss of your child. And, you know, so it's, there's a, like this powerful statement that Rav Chizda is making. On the one hand, it's not great because he cuts the mother out completely, okay? But on the other hand, what he is saying is, is that this is not like some type of a thing that is owned that he say, oh, if the father is around, well, the mother gets paid for it. Yes? I mean, how does this place would be Right. So Uber Yara Emo and if a woman converts, it's like the Tvilo occurred on the thing itself. Right. So yeah, you know, I mean uh, I don't know what to say about that. Like, it's sort of like what the Gemara said before about the shifcha. Like, wh- you're going back to the point of, like, why is this whole thing the chiddish? This is now a part of her body, and that should increase her value on the slave market, you know, and so on. But, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, like, I, I, right, which does get back to, like, let's just look at this. Like, this is all her body. It's a temporary increase in her, in her body, right? If a woman had grown some extra limb, <laughs> which was going to drop off but then had some market value <laughs> right you would say now it's part of her body and if that's her current value in the slave market she should be, be you know benefit from it yeah I don't know I mean again that's sort of you know that's that's like I think if we would totally just commodify her and see her as property we would say that and that's what the Gemara said about the shifcha but because we're at the same time like looking at her as a human and this thing is a future human but it does raise that question in general like when do we apply why Uber Yerachimon? When do we say this is a future human that's about going to be born and has something to say? Yeah, but we again, but but it doesn't. But there is a question about. Look, the biggest question is you know about the abortion question, right? Which is really like, is this a future life or is this my body? I can do what I want with my body. In a way, that's the question. Uber Yerachimon. I just I'm going to look at this as my body and as nothing else. Or no, you know, it's both your body and there's a, and there's a, a life here that's going to that, that's dependent on you, but that's going to become an independent life. So when Halacha, for example, when there are opinions in Halacha that allow abortion under certain circumstances, is that because we pask in Uber Erech Emo? Or is that... Un, un, what? No, no, no. That's an extreme circumstance when the mother's life is allowed. But there are actually poskim that say you need a much less threshold to allow for an abortion, especially at earlier stages and so on. Is that because of Uber Erech Emo? Or is that... No, no. Uber Erech Emo doesn't make a difference. It might be part of her body, but it's also a life. You have to assess it on those terms as well. Right? So that's always like that question about how to look at it. But yeah, you're right to be raising that question. Yeah, go. So it's funny also the language. Like, like, in the air. Well, that is true. I mean, that's the standard language, but yes. Right. Using contemporary terminology, you know. Yeah, got your hand in it. Yeah. Right. It's true. Yeah. I saw you. Yeah, one thing that is not mentioned here is the position that uh, the Catholic Church has, which is that an abortion is actual mamish murder. Well, yeah, but we're not dealing with abortion here, but that's correct. Although we do say that that's true for Bnei Noach yes but here um, just here uh, there's no discussion about the possibility you might put the uh, ox in trial for murder you might put the uh, well the ox is stoned I mean I understand oh you mean by case of miscarriage account that's correct okay um, now, because we're discussing who gets the things that are owed to a gear when a gear dies, we're going to have a nice little digression about that and put the whole goring ox and the pregnant woman thing aside for a moment. Okay. Okay, so basically, um, a gear has in his possession, you know, some IOUs, right? Says that Charlie owes him $1,000, and therefore the gear dies. So I run into the gear's house and I grab his IOU that Charlie owes him $1,000. Now, of course, I haven't 
grabbed the debt. I've just grabbed the document. Charlie is not going to have to pay me a thousand dollars because I happen to have grabbed the Gare's star after he died that said that Charlie owed him a thousand dollars. The question is, so that's taken for granted. Charlie doesn't have to pay me the money. You know who grabbed Charlie's debt as soon as the Gare died? Charlie. Charlie owed him the money. He was in possession, essentially, conceptually, of the money that belonged to the Gare. The Gare died. You now don't have to pay the Gare. So a Gare who doesn't have heirs is the right person to be borrowing money from. Okay? Now, um, the question is, I grab the piece of paper. Do, fine. Charlie gets to keep his money. Do I at least get to keep the piece of paper? That's the question. Or when I grabbed it, I wasn't thinking to keep a piece of paper. I thought I would get the debt. And that was my only intent. I really never even took possession of it qua a piece of paper. That's the question. Okay? So it says, Hamazi Bisharosav Shogir, Bahu, Mandamachzi Pashtara, Daiti the Arud Machzik. The one who's grabbing the document is grabbing because it thinks he thinks it's going to entitle him to the land that the document has liens on, which it doesn't, but that's what he thinks. The Shara Nami Lokana, the Lav Daite Ashtara, and you don't even get the physical document because you were really just trying to seize the debt. You weren't trying to, to own the document, the piece of paper. Odium, or do we say, no, Daite Nami Ashtara, you also wanted the document. I would say that that's true. Like, even if I thought I was seizing the debt, I knew that in order to collect the debt, I'd have to own the piece of paper, right? So, to me, like, isn't that obvious? Anyway, the Gemara says, I'm away. Um, Ani Mori, answer me, my master. <laughs> I understand. Why does he need this piece of paper? What, he wants to use it as a bottle stopper? Like, what type of silly question is this? Who needs a piece of paper? I'm like, yes, what's the answer? Yes, right, he wants to use it as a bottle stopper. <laughs> Meaning, I don't know why he wants the piece of paper, but that's my question. Does he own the piece of paper? Okay? So, I'm a, so we don't, we didn't answer, but presumably, yeah, he does own the piece of paper. Presumably. I'm a robber. So now Rob has the final question. Mashkino show Yisrael Biyad Geir. Okay? Now, uh, Charlie owes this gare here a thousand dollars. Now Charlie is the one who uh, right or oh, he owed him that money before. Okay, but the gare has in his possession uh, Charlie's uh, big screen TV. Okay, which he has as a collateral. Okay, and now the gare dies. Can I run into the gare's house and seize the, Charlie's big screen TV? What do you think? What do you think? No. What? As soon, he had a Shiva on it, but as soon as the gear dies, it presumably reverts to Charlie. It's Charlie's TV. Okay? So, that's going to show you Shabi Yadgir. Umeza Gir. So I went into the gear's house after he died and I seized his, uh, the big screen TV. Martina so miyado. You take it away from me and you give it back to Charlie. My time. Even the Nisle gear, once the gear died, Pakale Shibude. His lean on this mosque, on this collateral, disappeared, and therefore it reverted to its original owner. Okay, now, Mashkino show Gare Biyad Yisrael. Now it's the reverse. This Gare owes Charlie $1,000, and Charlie's got the Scare's big screen TV, and then the Gare dies. Okay, so, does Charlie have to do a new Kenyan on it, or because he had a lien on it, he owns it right away? That's the question. Okay, so, Umeita Gare, So I break into Charlie's house and I grab his, his, the, the, the TV that was the collateral. Okay, so the law is So Charlie owns a thousand dollars of the big screen TV, okay, because that was the debt, and presumably even without doing a Kenyan, as soon as the gear went away, his liens were uh, exercised, you know, were actualized, and he now became owner of it, of it, uh, c- corresponding to the money he was owed. But he didn't own the rest of it. I took possession of the rest of it. Now the question is going to be, but I don't understand. It was in Charlie's house. 
then he should have just taken possession of it because it was a piece of Gare's property forget the liens that was in his house and he should just decone it automatically like a Kenyan Chatzar so let's take a look Damai says the Gemara let Charlie's yard just automatically take possession. It's like a Hefker object that's in Charlie's yard. Forget about his uh, liens. Right? He should take possession before I seize it. The yard takes possession even without his awareness, even if he wasn't aware that the gear had died. Um, that Charlie is not in the city. He's not in his home. And the basic principle is that a chatzar is only koneh without the owner's presence if it's a chatzar ha merit, if it's protected. But so if it's in the house, house isn't a good example. The house is mishka merit. But let's say in his front yard. And he doesn't have a fence around his front yard. And anybody can come and grab it. So if Charlie is not around, the chatzar doesn't operate. It doesn't operate as a chatzar. He still owns the portion of the TV opposite his loan, the thousand dollars, because he had those liens on it. He had that right to it. And those rights became actualized when the gear died. But he's not Kona it in the, the rest of it just because it's in his yard because the yard is not protected and Charlie is not around. So the rest of it is still up for grabs and I was able to take possession of the balance of it that was not opposite the loan that was owed to Charlie. Okay? Is there something of yours on your front yard you're out of town there's no, there's no fence? Correct. No, no. If it's yours, it's yours. If a Hefker object rolls into your yard right. or a Gare's object was in your yard and the Gare died and there's no fence around it then first, first come first serve Amri so the Gemara says okay so why didn't it, so Charlie isn't around and therefore his yard doesn't take possession of it and the balance of it that's not connected to the loan uh, anybody else can take okay anytime he's around where he wanted to take possession he could so then his yard takes possession for him but if he's not around that if he wanted to take possession he couldn't it also doesn't it's funny that it has that very drawn out language it could have just said it's a chatzar sheinam yishkamerit you know and if he's not around it doesn't work but anyway that seems to be the point and the says the hilchah and the loch is to lay you know why it didn't work? Because, again, there's two ways of reading this. Tosus reads it just repeating what we just said. Since Charlie isn't in his yard, he did not take possession of the whole object. He only took possession of it to negate his loan. So he owes a, owns $1,000 and anybody else could take possession of the rest because Charlie isn't in his yard. But if Charlie were in his yard, yes, or if it was had a fence around it, of course he would take possession of it fully. Rashi reads, to lay doesn't mean Charlie isn't in the yard. It means the object isn't in the yard. The big screen TV was somewhere, I don't know, Charlie had left it in somebody else's, uh, you know, possession or whatever. It was in the, he had left it in the middle of the street. So in that case, his yard can't take possession, but he automatically owns the part that is opposite his loan, and the rest is free for grabs. Yes, Harold, you had a question. Oh, I mean, it doesn't go into the question of like, Zachin, like, and right. Right. So that's why the language is strange. He, if he was here, he could, if he wanted to. Right. Yeah, right, right. So that's why Tozos immediately just connects this to the idea of Chatzar Mishkameret. Now, it could be that that's why Rashi, because it is such a strange language that we normally don't talk in those terms, understands that the Gemara in the last three words is rejecting everything it said before. Forget this nonsense about where Charlie is. That doesn't make a difference. The Chatzar is always Konya. 
So the case is that the object wasn't in the Chatzor. That's what we're talking about. That could be why Rashi reads it that way. Because the language, it's not that the law is wrong, but the way it's phrasing it is so funny. It should just have said, You know, or something like that, right? It's a very, I agree with you. That presumably is why Rashi reads that the last three words in the Mar rejects all the stuff that was said before. And further, but by didn't we know that it's, it's automatically is the falls into a chutz there. Well, no, actually, it's not a chutz, but it's, it's, there's a what? Then we don't assume it's a chutz by get, but there's an issue of yada and whatever and balkarcha. Right. Yeah, 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 that is true. But anyway, so that's presumably why Rashi reads that the last three lines say, forget about where Charlie is. The question is where the object is. That's how Rashi reads the last three, three words. Okay, let's now start. So now that we've gone through, I guess, wrap up stuff about goring oxen, we're now finally shifting to discussing bore in a more fo- focused way. So let's at least get started. You dig a bore in your domain, but the opening is in the Rishut HaRabim. So basically, the key here is looking at this, look at this tiny Tosfos. says, The basic rule you have to know about this whole discussion is, Okay, the, the, the well is the goes by where the opening is, right? Where you can fall into it. Okay, It's like, it's determined by where, by where the opening is. So basically, you have here, here's your Rishut Yachid, right, and here's the main street, here's the Rishut Rabim, okay, and you've got your boar, well actually, that's not a good way of drawing it, or at least whatever, I can't forget how to draw it, okay, anyway, here is the above the ground, here's your Rishut Yachid. Okay, and you so the underground it goes into Rishut Hayachid. It's in your domain. Okay, but the opening is in Rishut Rabim, right? Somebody walking in Rishut Rabim is going to fall down. It doesn't matter that underground it's like in your it's a dug you know under the ground it's in your domain, right? Above the ground the opening is in Rishut Rabim. Okay, so it goes by where the opening is. So if it's opened into Rishut Hayachid, yeah, it's dug in Rishut Hayachid, but it's Open to Rishon Rabim, or or Rishon Rabim pitchol Rishon Yachid, or the reverse. Rishon Yachid pitchol Rishon Yachid, or it's both dug and opened into Rishon Yachid. A different Rishon Yachid. Rashi says it means of a different person, but it just could mean your own Rishon Yachid. A different one. Chayav. In all those cases, it's Chayav, which basically means that it doesn't. If we're going to assume that it really just matters where the opening is, what it's basically saying is it doesn't matter if you dug it in your domain or in Rishon Rabim. You're always going to be Chayav. Now, when you dig a bore in your domain, you're not. If it's in the middle of my yard, I'm not Chayav. If you walk into my yard, okay, especially if you walk into Loper Shut. The only way you're high if it's in your domain is if you dig it right at the edge of your property, okay, and then somebody falls in, because then you could say you do not have a right to walk up to the. I'm sorry, if you are high, it's because by digging it right at the edge of your property, right near Rashid Rabim, you're creating a, ha- a hazard for Rashid Rabim. Or the other scenario is you dig it in the middle of your property and then you're mafting your property to the Rashid Rabim, to the Rabim, and you're giving them access to it. So if they have access to it because it's right at the edge or because you've given them access to it, those could be scenarios that you're high for a born Rishut HaYachid. What we're going to look at tomorrow, though, is the whole debate between Rebbe Tarfon and Rebbe Akiva, which is maybe you're only high for one of those, those two cases. There's a reason to only be high for Rishut HaRabim for the obvious reason that it's a big public hazard, as opposed to even the cases I gave by Rishut HaYachid, it's much less of a hazard. And ironically, there'll be a reason to be high only in Rishut HaYachid. Can you think why you would be high only in Rishut HaYachid? 
there's not a good normal logic, but once you've been learning Bapakama, you could understand the logic. Because if it's in Rishad Hayachid, then it's yours, yeah. and you own it. So in the logic of Mamun Hamazik, right, there's more of a reason to be high, assuming that it's also a hazard, it's at, let's say, the edge of Rishad Harabim, you could understand why there's more of a logic in the formalistic logic of Babakama, okay? So we'll continue with that tomorrow. How do you, let's say, the boy 